On this episode of My Mind is a Collier's Mansion, we're going to discuss firefighter suicide. So recently, our area has been hit by another firefighter suicide. As tragic and emotionally overwhelming as this is, it affords us an opportunity. An opportunity to try and understand the why and bring to light the ever-growing problem of mental health in the fire service. Most of the time, we don't understand it because we, including myself, can't bear to understand our own issues and problems. We have a hard time admitting to that we have a problem because it's a sign of weakness, but it's not. Mental illness is a physical disease, a physical disease like cancer, and should be treated as such. So first, let's dive into the mental illness as a physical disease. We'll kind of go through some steps here and some processes, and uh, we'll get we'll get to the actual suicide portion of it here in a little bit. I just recently finished this fantastic book, Taking the Cape Off by Chief Patrick Kenny. Fantastic book, and my hat's off to Chief Kenny. I know that that was gut-wrenching and, and probably very hard to write. The man does a fantastic job of telling his story. If you get a chance, please pick up his book. It, it's, it's very worthwhile. In the book, he relates mental illness to a physical disease. He relates it to brain cancer. Some characteristics are the same. They're similar treatments sometimes similar outcomes, extremely different viewpoints. You know, the characteristics are the same. Sometimes it's terminal. Mental illness can be a terminal disease. There are similar treatments, as in there is treatment for it. There's medications, there's therapies, there's all kinds of different things that you would normally do for a disease like that. So why are we not doing it for mental illness? It's because there are extremely different viewpoints. So why? Why do we view mental illness as something that doesn't exist or is not a physical disease. Is it pride? Probably. I'm too proud. I don't want to show that I'm weak. I don't want to show others that I'm weak because then they'll think poorly of me. Is it denial? Absolutely. I, I don't have a problem. I'm, I'm mentally fit. I'm healthy. I can take on anything. Which brings us to, are we too tough or too good to be afflicted with a mental disease? Sure. I get that. I, I completely get that. We as firefighters, we have that persona of we are the helpers. We don't need help. We are the saviors. We don't need saving. And there's the stigma around it. You know, we run on a daily basis four or five psych calls. Oh, they're just crazies. They, you know, off their meds. You know, whatever that viewpoint is, there's a stigma around mental health not just in the fire service, but in society as a whole. And which is wrong. We need to get rid of that stigma. We need to break that stigma so that people feel more comfortable and open about talking about their, their physical disease. It should be treated like a physical problem. So I recently, the past few years, went and started seeing a therapist um, after some an incident I had and was having a really tough time processing everything, really tough time dealing with it. During these sessions, the therapist said to me, she said, well, what do you, who, do, who is your primary care physician? I looked at her and said, I don't, I don't have one. I don't need one. I'm never sick. I'm never ill. I never go to the doctor. I don't, you know, I, I have medical problems. Sure, we all do, aches and pains and everything, but I don't need a doctor. And she looked at me straight in the eyes. She said, but you are sick and you do have an illness. You need to treat it like an illness, a physical disease. 
And I never really, really got that until that point in time. And I'm like, it's like a light bulb came on. It's like, wow, you are absolutely correct. So before we look at the components of suicide, let's take a look at some questions some people have and some stuff, stigmas around it. Suicide is more than just having a plan and executing that plan. And we have to really change our mindset to think about that. It's not about giving up. It's not about everything they had going for them, their loved ones, their future. How could they do this? It's truly about the pain, the physical pain that this this person is in. Uh, and they see it as the only option to get rid of this pain. It's, it's very similar to if you had cancer. You are going to do everything in your power to try to beat the cancer. You're going to use chemo. You're going to use other therapies. For somebody who is suicidal, somebody who is in that, that dark state, that deep depression, this may be the only thing that they see, the only option that they have. And when it is the only option to make that pain go away, the choice becomes clear. It becomes obvious that that is the only thing that they can do to get rid of this this pain that they're going through. Those who have never gone through that pain, who have never been in that spot before, can't expect to understand that. But relating it to a physical illness might open your mind and open your eyes to exactly what it is, that, that type of pain that they're going through. So Dr. Thomas Joyner uh, did a paper on suicide and said that there are three components that when all aligned, lead typically lead to suicide. First component, component is a thwarted belongingness, a psychological state when we believe we don't belong. Even when we do, we feel like we don't. Um, I'm not part of that clique. Uh, that group doesn't like me. I'm outcasted because I said something. Um, it could be simple as you know, somebody who repeatedly gets transferred around their department like we do. They may not feel like they truly belong to a group. Their new shift doesn't like them. I'm not like those guys. I don't like to do the things that they do. So I don't really necessarily feel I belong to that. I think we can all relate at some time of our lives that we felt like we didn't belong, even though really we did. And that's, you know, the first component. The second component is a perceived burdensomeness, a psychological state that makes us think we are a burden. A, a perfect example is a rookie comes to your shift. So you have certain goals, certain requirements, certain training things that you have to do with this rookie. It becomes they are now a high demand and the other people on the shift kind of sometimes get pushed off to the side. Well, that rookie may now feel that they are kind of a burden on that shift. Um, they can make it feel like, you know, I'm, I'm affecting what these people wanted to do and they don't like me for it. So I'm, I'm kind of a burden. A shift can make someone feel like that pretty easily just by, you know, snide comments. Oh, we got to go train the rookie again. Oh, I got to go teach the rookie how to do this. Oh gosh. You know, you know, so changing that mindset and changing that attitude towards new employees and, you know, can help change that stigma. Um, so the third component, and I think it's most this is the most crucial component uh, for firefighters, is capability, the the ability to enact lethal self injury. Firefighters, police, military, 
we all take an oath and a commitment to sacrificing ourselves for the greater good. We devalue our lives and are willing to sacrifice it for something or someone. Uh, we talk about it all the time. We do this for them. We do this for our our brothers, our sisters, our family. You know, we put our life, value our life as less when it's compared to the citizens we're sworn to serve. Uh, we go to work every day with that thought. Uh, the thought that we might die in the line of duty saving somebody else. Um, we train and train and train on the things that will kill us and how to avoid them or how to get out of trouble because we know it's the inevitable. Uh, I once had somebody who worked for me, someone who I really respect and think very highly of tell me, he's, he came up to me and said, don't ever worry about sending me to my death. It is what I, it's what I agreed to do when I signed up for this job. And I, I looked at him straight in the eye, I'm like, I hope I never have to do that, but I appreciate that sentiment. That sentiment is what what we do. You know, we take that oath. We we know the risks, and we're willing to truly die for somebody else. Um, as a supervisor, you know, somebody saying that to me makes me doesn't make me think that oh my god, this guy's crazy. He's suicidal. He's got a death wish. Everything. No, he's just committed to his job. He's committed to that calling. Now, if you take these items and you put them by themselves the isolated feelings of not belonging or being a burden or having that ability and that that third factor of ability to enact self-harm uh, isolated they aren't enough necessarily to want somebody to commit suicide um, so we should not think that every time a person doesn't get picked for a project doesn't get picked for a work group that oh my gosh they're going to be suicidal or that person that we transfer all the time is going to kill themselves. We can't do that. No, that's not what that means. But as a supervisor, as, as a leader, it's good to keep an eye on these people anyways. It's good to keep an eye on and know the emotions of your people. Because that's our job. But we'll discuss more on that in a little bit later. The problem really starts when all of these problems align like a Venn diagram. Venn diagram, you know, the, the circles and stuff, how they overlap and you get that one perfect spot in the middle. That's when we need to be aware and start asking more questions. Uh, that's when suicide truly becomes that only option. As a kid in my teen years, I was suicidal. Um, I had people who loved me. I had a family. I was great at what I did. I had friends, but I was depressed. Um, later in my life, I would realize that I clinically depressed and it is a family trait but at that time in my mind I didn't belong not like my older brother who was a football player not like my little sister who was the only girl I was the middle child now there's a whole study on middle child syndrome if you want to look that up but it's it can be very enlightening but I felt like I truly didn't belong to anybody you know I was doing my own thing I was you know, I had friends, I had great friends, but I just, it, something was, was off. Um, my childhood and upbringing weren't the best. We were poor, we were being raised by a single mom, living on welfare. We moved all the time, it seemed like every couple of years. Um, I was weak, I was scrawny, I was in the way all the time. Uh, in my mind, I wasn't good at much, even though I, I was fantastic at the things I did. But I felt like 
because of all that, I was a burden to my family, another mouth to feed, another reason my mother had to work two or three jobs, another reason, you know, my brother didn't like me because I was in the way, I needed a ride here and there, uh, the things that I was doing at school and after school, you know, I had to arrange transportation as an example, and I couldn't do it all the time. And it kind of made me feel like I was I was a burden on the family. I was not the fr- the football player, and I, I definitely was not the cute little girl. Um, but what I lacked was at the time was that an ability to enact lethal self injury. I tried. I had the knife to my wrist, but I just I just couldn't do it. And now I now I understand why I just didn't have that that ability. I valued my life significantly. Um, but I ended up getting help through a school counselor and a therapist, kind of, um, more of, I, I learned to cope on my own by, by burying everything deep down and never bringing it up again. And that has not really served me very well over time. And as an adult, uh, I, I look back on those days and I'm like, wow, what was I, what was I doing? What was I thinking? Why didn't I follow through with these things? You know, I can I can blame other people. I can blame society. I can blame all kinds of stuff. But it was me. You know, that's pretty much it. There's there's no getting around that at all. It was just it was me and the way I dealt with it and I coped with it. It's not healthy and it has reared its ugly head multiple times as an adult. Um, but it's it's just what I did. So now let's talk about when suicide is the only option seen. Imagine that you're in a dark room. You need to get to the door to survive. Okay. There's only one path to this door, but you can't see it because it's dark. The only way to see it is to turn the light on by flipping that switch next to you. The only way you can get out of that room is by turning that light on. You have weighed all your other options. You can't stumble. You can't crawl. Uh, the only way to get out of that room is by turning that light switch on. You've accepted that that's the only way that you can get out of that room. Suicide is kind of the same way. The only way to survive is to turn the light on and walk out. Even though turning this light on will wake everybody up. It'll make the dog bark, your spouse mad, the kids cry. Your survival depends on turning that switch on. It's the only way that you see to get out of there. Now imagine being in pain and the only way out of that pain is ending your life. Similar to the light switch is the only option that you see. You've tried everything or so you think you've tried everything. You know people love you, you know they care, but ending your life is the only option to stopping this pain. You are so tired of being in pain and it just has to stop use that imagery of trying to get out of that dark room it's kind of the same thing you know there's one way out you know how to do it and when you've come to accept that that's that is it life kind of changes for you you know they say that people who are have committed suicide um, just before they do it they kind of they kind of cheer up they kind of their problems kind of go away because they've accepted and they see the end they, they know that my pain is going to come to an end soon because I figured out how to stop it. Uh, after death, it's said we're no longer in pain. 
and those that we leave behind are left to deal with our pain. At the time, it isn't about them. If it were about them, if it were about your loved ones, you you wouldn't do it. You would not commit suicide because you love them and you know people care about you. So now imagine you're in that same dark room again. You see the only option to get out is turning that light on. Then off to the side, someone turns their light on for you to see. Ask people if they are okay. That's turning that that light on. Better yet, like in Chief Kenny's book, he says, ask, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything I can help you with? I may not be able to make this pain go away, but I may be able to lessen it. I may be able to dampen it just enough. Person realizes that, you know, suicide is not the answer. Studies and interviews of people who were on the verge of suicide who've been talked off that ledge, who have been talked out of it, have said that it was the fact that someone showed they cared. They asked them if they could help. Is it that simple? Is that the answer that we're missing? Is that the key thing? I don't know, but it's a good place to start. But when you ask, you need to have a plan and be prepared for the answer that you're going to get. Uh, Be prepared to listen for a while. Don't you know, sit there and continuously look at your watch. You know, I got this project I got to do. I got this other thing. I really didn't didn't mean to ask you how you're doing or if there's anything I can help with. Be sincere, people. I mean, it's not that hard. Shut your phone off. Close your office door. Be present. Practice active listening. People can see through the fake sincerity and won't open up to you, especially somebody who is in that mental state of wanting to end their lives. They've probably had people talk to them before, you know, and half-heartedly, hey, buddy, you doing okay? Yeah, I'm fine. People can see through that fake sincerity. Pre-plan this conversation the same way we pre-plan a building. Know the hazards, know the exits, know the resources that you are going to need to help this person out to make this conversation go the way it should. Uh, The Air Force has a, a great model. It's ask, know where to go, and escort the person safely. They call it the ACE model. You're going to ask the question, is there anything I can do for you? Are you suicidal? So after you ask the person, know where to go. Know what resources you have available to you, what resources you have in your your area, um, in your your company, your fire department. It's, It's not hard to find these things sometimes. Sometimes it is. But that don't give up on trying to find those resources. And then escort the person safely. Um, make sure that you know they're in a good place physically. Uh, make sure that they I don't they have somebody watching them. Make sure that you know if it's if it's going to a hospital, it's you're escorting them to the hospital. If it's going to a therapist, a crisis counselor, making a phone call, sit there with them and, and be part of it. Be part of their journey. As leaders, how well we do we know our people who work for us? You know, how well do you know those people? And I'm not talking about their kids' names, their wife's birthdays, their anniversaries, who their mom and dad are, you know, what town they're from. I'm talking about their emotional reactions to events, the way they normally carry themselves, their typical work mood. Can you tell when something is off and when they're having a bad day? Uh, 
it doesn't take much. I typically sit at one end of the table at the firehouse so that I can see everybody that's coming on shift and how they're doing, their, their physical state, their mental state when they come through the door. Uh, you can tell a lot just by people's patterns. We're, we're creatures of habit, right? Look at them, ask them questions, pay attention to them. Pre-plan your people. If they are off, find a way to ask them. Ask them what's going on. Start that conversation. And it, it may end up being, hey, you got a second, I can show you this thing outside. They may be the type of person that you can abruptly approach um, and say, you know, you're off. I don't know what's going on, but I can help you. Um, it may be somebody you just send a text to and say, hey, buddy, I noticed you were uh, a little short at shift change today. Is everything going okay? Pay attention to your people. It's not that hard. Truly is not that hard. And know and note when they are off. Now, I will throw in this, this caveat of some people put up a, a great wall their, their wall of self-defense. They don't want to show you their emotions. They don't want to let you in. They don't let anybody in. I was one of those people. Ask my wife. She says constantly that I had a wall that she was able to break down and break through. Um, sometimes it takes persistence, but don't expect it to be an immediate thing. Don't expect it to, to be able to break through that person's wall. Some people are hurting bad enough and have been hurting for so long, their coping mechanism is throwing up that wall and burying those emotions deep down inside. And it takes persistence. It takes that showing that person really, truly cares to get through. Um, but offer to help people with whatever it is. You know, offer to talk to people. Just sit down and have that conversation. Even if you aren't quote-unquote trained, oh, I've heard it numerous times. Oh, I'm not trained to do that. Oh, I don't do hazmat. I don't. I don't do, you know, talking to people. I'm not a peer support team member. That's bullshit. You can sit and have a conversation. You can sit and listen, and just actively listen. You don't have to have the answers, but know what resources you have available to you to help find the answers. If you truly care about somebody, the way we talk about our brotherhood, you truly care about the people that you supposedly love and will do anything for and you'll lay down your life for them, why not help them with their mental health? Know these resources. So to kind of wrap all this up um, and to summarize it, I like to use the, the saying, failure is not an option. Failure is an option. It's just the least desirable option. Very similar to suicide. People say, well, suicide's not an option. Well, suicide is an option. It's always there. It is an option. It's just the least desired option. What we have to realize is somebody who's at that point, it's, that's the only option they see. That's their breaking point. That's the only light at the end of that tunnel is suicide. We can break out of it. We can help them. We can listen. Sometimes it's just asking the question, Hey buddy, what can I help you with? I've noticed something's been bothering you. And then knowing your resources. Pay attention to those people. You know, we have so many people who want to be leaders and so many people who are leaders or claim they're leaders, but they have no idea what's going on with their people in their lives. Be that person. Be that change. It's the only way we can get ahead of this 
and, and stop this suicide. Suicides have now become, I believe, the number one killer of firefighters. We need to stop that trend. Knowing your resources. So it's what resources are out there. Our department has a peer support team. They're fantastic. You call one person and you can get as many people as you need. And we have resources. If you don't want to talk to us, there's regional peer support teams. Um, I'm a member of our local department's peer support team and I'm a member of a regional peer support team. I know people all through the state that are probably going, have gone through or going through something similar that can help you. Um, know your crisis work lines, your crisis hotlines. You can text 741-741 and a crisis worker will text you back if you don't want to talk. Some people feel more comfortable texting than they do you know, that actual using our voices. Um, and that's okay as long as you are actually getting help. Um, there's EAP. EAP offers a lot of services, but you have to remember they are a contracted service. They may not provide you with the therapist that's going to help you or the counselor that's going to help you. Uh, a lot of firefighters say that they don't like using therapists and, because they don't want to have to explain what a ladder truck is. They don't want to have to explain that on a daily basis we see what we see. Uh, and I get that. I completely do. The therapist or the counselor that I started going to see, um, I knew she was a good fit because in our first five minutes of conversation, she dropped more F-bombs than I did. I knew at that point, you know, she understands me. And there's your friends and family. You know, talk to your friends and family. Don't be afraid to ask that question to that person who's hurting. Hey, do you mind if I talk to your wife about this? Do you mind if I talk to your mom or dad about this? Somebody that they respect, somebody that they have believe is a mentor um, and that they would willing, be willing to talk to. Sometimes our family members are the last people to know. They don't, they don't realize what's, what's actually going on in our heads. So to wrap this up, I want you to realize that suicide is not your only option and it's not your only way out. There are other ways, so please reach out to somebody. And if you know somebody, please reach out to them. So that's it for this episode. I hope you got something out of this, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Until next time.